All right, if you want to go ahead and uh, get your seats. Let's get our Bibles open. If you're watching this online, I know I can't see you, but uh, I'm going to encourage you to get your Bible out as well. And uh, we always want to encourage people, let's get our Bibles open. We are a Bible-preaching church. Every time you come, you're going to hear the Word of God being preached. You're not getting a bunch of opinions. You're getting God's opinion through His Word. So let me encourage you to get that Bible open to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And uh, when you get Acts 20 open, if you could stand up, that's our way of honoring the authority of the Word of God in our lives. So stand up if you would. Acts chapter 20. And uh, it's page 929 if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew. And so as soon as you open it up, if you're able to stand, stand with us, please, as we honor God's word together. So let's do that. All right, if you can stand, I'm waiting for you to stand. That's our way of uh, really bringing the word of God and authority over all of us. Acts chapter 20. Stephen, I'm looking right at you, dude. You better get up. I'll come back there. And the guy next to you, grab him by the elbow and say, I love you, brother. It's time to stand up. All right, Acts chapter 20. Here we go. Acts chapter 20, we're reading verses 1 through 12. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions... And had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now we're at verse 7, and watch what's about to happen. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. You may be seated and we're going to open up and we're going to talk about what we just read. And I tell you what, I think it's going to be pretty, uh, well, I think it's going to be pretty insightful. So let's hope that uh, we see what God wants us to see. The title of this message is Being the Encouraging Church. Being the Encouraging Church. 
church. Now, one of the things that I always like to say, and it reminds me to check mine, is to make sure your cell phones are off. So everybody check your cell phone. That's okay. Mine has gone off while I preached as well. And I've always like, oh, I've got to remember to do that. So turn your cell phones off if you would, or at least the volume off. All right, here we go. We got to look at this message. I think it's going to be pretty invigorating. For just a moment, here we go. I want you to think of a time when someone really encouraged you. Think of a time right now, just privately, quietly, in your own mind, think of a time when someone deeply encouraged you. Now, you need to be thinking about that because that's going to set the pace for this sermon. I know sometimes preachers ask you to do something and, you know, you just sort of put your, your mind on autopilot, neutral. You're thinking about something else. But I really want you to think about this. I want you to think about a time when someone really deeply encouraged you. I've been tremendously encouraged by a lot of you in this church. It's been profoundly impactful in my life. And I can even go back all the way to what I think, or at least in my memory, is the first time someone deeply encouraged me. I am sure I was encouraged before this point, but I remember in 11th grade in high school, an incredibly life-changing, significant encouragement. Here's what happened. In 11th grade, our English teacher was pregnant and she had to get out and go on maternity leave. And in her place in our school came a man that none of us ever met before. His name was Ed Lawless. He took her place throughout the rest of that year. And he continually encouraged all of us, but he, he made it a, a point to personally encourage me. I've always liked to write always like to write. Basically, that's what I do every week. I write a sermon every week. I love to write. I've always loved to write. And he recognized that. He affirmed that. And I'm never going to forget this. I asked him back then. I don't know. I think they still do it. When we got our yearbook, you would walk around and you would have everybody sign it. And I went to Ed Lawless and I said, would you be willing to sign my yearbook? He said, absolutely. And I still remember that when he signed that, he said to me, Tim, you have a gift in writing, cultivate it, let it grow. Now I'm gonna tell you something, I think I read that probably over a hundred times. It just sank deeper and deeper and deeper into my heart every time I read it. Every time I read it, it put a shock through my system. He deeply, deeply encouraged me. And he probably thought nothing of it. If I, I, try, I have tried tracking him down because I've wanted him to know that story, but I cannot find him. He probably would think nothing of it. He probably doesn't even remember it, but I remember it distinctly. It is a memorial marker in my life. It's the first time I can remember anybody deeply, deeply encouraging me. Now, I've asked you to think about when has somebody deeply encourage you. Now I'm going to flip the tables. You ready? Everybody listen. Can you think of a time when you have deeply encouraged somebody else? 
Now, I know this could be significant and I know it matters, but to tell somebody, you know what, you look really happy today or you look really good today or that hairstyle looks good on you, that's, that's great and that's meaningful and people, I think, receive that well, almost always, but I'm talking about deeply encouraging you as in it makes an impact in your life. When's the last time you have deeply encouraged someone in your life? Now, I want you to hold on to that thought because we're going to work through what it means to be an encourager and how can we become an encouraging church. Now, I want you to hear something for a moment. Even if you are watching this online, I want you to think for a moment, how are you deeply encouraging people in our church? And if you're here in person and you know there are people that cannot yet return or have not yet returned online, how are we deeply encouraging people online? People that you don't see in person. Now keep that in mind because the Apostle Paul is wrapping up his third and final missionary journey. What we're going to see almost in the rest of Acts is he is on his way to die. He is wrapping up his third and final missionary journey, and I've got three things that I think could be meaningful for all of us to teach us how to be encouraging people. Number one, point number one, if you're taking notes, encouragers live life toward others. Now, I want you to think about that. Encouragers live life toward Others. Now look at verses 1 and 2. After the uproar ceased, Acts 20, verse 1, Paul sent for the disciples. Now what I would encourage you to do, and this is what I did last week when Pastor Kyle was preaching, I got my Bible open, and as I'm reading verses 1 and 2, I, if I were you, I would follow along with it as well. Let it, living word of God sink deep into your heart. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, maybe you want to underline that. You're going to see it twice in these two verses. He said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Now I'm going to keep dripping this into you. Parents, how often are you intentionally, deeply encouraging your children? Now kids, I'm not letting you off the hook. How often are you deeply and intentionally encouraging your parents? When's the last time that you personally, privately came to your mom or your dad, even us adult children, and said to them how impactful they've been in your life? You don't put a joke. You know, we usually make it a little easier, right? Because it gets a little tense. It gets a little awkward. So we make it a joke to ease all of that. Well, you just threw away your encouragement. Do it without the joke. How impactful have you been? You know, there is such a thing as the spiritual gift of encouragement. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, that means that the Spirit of God, when you become a Christian, will give you a gift or even sometimes more than one gifts. And what they are are supernatural empowerment to be able to live a life that is going to accomplish the purposes of God. And there are all kinds of spiritual gifts. Well, there is a spiritual gift of encouragement. It's a supernatural enabling to do that. 
And not everybody has that. And if you don't have the spiritual gift of, of encouragement, I do not. It doesn't mean that I am still not supposed to encourage people, nor does it mean that you're off the hook. We all need to live encouraging lives. And you know what? When you're around somebody that's an encourager, you know as well as I do, you feel lifted up afterwards. You feel better after being around them. There's just something that they do in your life that actually makes a difference. And we can all live this way when it becomes intentional. But we got to understand what encouraging even means. So here we go. I'm going to teach you some Greek. Everybody ready? Because you're going to pronounce the Greek word after I do. I will cue you on it. Encouraging in the Greek in verses 1 and 2. It's the Greek word parakaleo. Parakaleo. Everybody say it together. Parakaleo. Now I think about 50% of you said that. I have an uncanny statistician mind. Let's try it again. Parakaleo. You ready? Parakaleo. That means it's a verb. It means to call someone alongside. That's what it actually means, to call someone alongside. And the initiator, the one who's calling, may be the helper or the one in need. But in other words, you might be calling someone alongside so that you can encourage them, so that you can help them, or you may be calling someone alongside because you need them to encourage and help you. It doesn't matter which one in the Greek initiates it. It simply means to call someone alongside. Well, here's some of the ways that that parakaleo is used. It means to exhort. You know what I just did to Stephen a little bit ago? Stephen, get up or I'm coming back there. That's called exhorting. It means come alongside strongly and get people to do what they need to do. It can be praying. This is how the ancient people prayed to their God. They would parakaleo. It was a verb. They would pray to their God. It could be comforting somebody, encouraging somebody, admonishing. You know what admonishing means? It means, listen, where you're going, the direction of your life, it's going to end in misery. You need to stop and go in a different direction. That's what it means to admonish someone. It means to correct well, how is it actually used? Now, this is actually pretty cool. I'll give you three ways. There's actually a whole ton of ways that parakaleo is used in the ancient Greek. Let me give you three ways, okay? So let's say that you are a traveling merchant, and your wagon has wheels about that thick. They are wood wheels with iron banding around them, and the, the roads were usually not wide enough for two wagons to pass one another. One of the wagons needs to go off the road, and what would invariably happen is the one wagon that went off the road would get stuck in the mud, sometimes buried up to the axles. And so the people on the wagon would parakaleo. They are calling somebody to help. And if you're there and you get into the mud, into the dirt, and you put your shoulder to the wheel to get them out, that's parakaleo. Well, let's say you're a sailor and your ship breaks down in the ocean 
and you put up a flag, a flag of distress, and a passing ship sees it, and they tie their boat up against your boat, and they help you make the repairs, and if they can't make the repairs in the ocean, they tow you to the nearest harbor. That's parakaleo. You are in trouble. Here comes somebody to help. They get you to safety. I'll give you a third and final, and there are so many examples of this. Let's say that now you're a soldier. You're not a merchant. You're not a sailor. You're a soldier. And you're fighting an army twice the size of your army, and you are absolutely terrified, and you are in rank, and you are waiting for the call and the trumpet to blow by which you will charge. Well, before that happens, here comes your captain, and he is on his horse, and he is going up and down the ranks, and he is reminding you of your training. He is reminding of you, you of your purpose. He is reminding you that you are defending your wives and your children and your farms and your villages and your cities. He is encouraging you to fight. That's parakaleo. Now you're getting an idea, I hope, from the sailor, the merchant, and the soldier how parakaleo works. It is to exhort. It is to encourage. It is to admonish. It is to help. It is to comfort. And there's a whole lot more words you could supply. But how does it look today? Well, you might be lonely. And you might have gotten fired from your job. You might have gone to the doctor and you've got a diagnosis of a serious health issue. You get onto the phone and you call your friend and you say, I need you with me now. That's parakaleo. I need you to pray with me. That's parakaleo. It means to come alongside, to share life together. Well, you might be struggling with a sin. Now, you know as well as I do, every single one of us struggles with a sin. It is a deep, soul-deep, cosmic defiance. We say to God, I don't want your way. I want my way, and I'm willing to suffer the consequences. That's what sin is, and it produces things that we should not do or the things we ought to do and refuse to do. All of that sin. And you may be struggling with a sin and God reveals that to you and you call somebody in the church and you say, listen, I don't know if I can trust you. I know this is going to be hard, but I know I need to tell you I'm really struggling with this sin. And that person listens. No judgment. It's a judgment-free zone. Churches really ought to be better at that. And they pray for you. That's parakaleo. You see, it's to call someone alongside, and it's to live life together. I'll give you another example. How about when your little child parents cries out in the middle of the night because they've had a nightmare, a night terror, and you rush into there, and you sit down, and maybe even sometimes lie down in the bed, and you're just stroking their arm until they go back to sleep. That is parakaleo. That's what it looks like. And it cannot be done in a relational vacuum of private living. It cannot be done if you or I think that we don't need people, or people don't need us. If we're too proud to unzip our hearts and let people 
people see who we really are. You cannot experience parakaleo. Now, I've told you what it looks like. I've given you a whole lot of meanings for it. But let me tell you what the purpose of parakaleo is. And so far, this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you. You see, there are, in two, there are two ingredients of encouragement that you and I, by the time this message is over, we must, it is critically important that we must learn them. Here they are. It means to strengthen each other and to call forth greater and renewed commitments to Christ. If we're going to be a, an encouraging church, that means we must learn to be involved. We must be humble enough to be transparent and call others alongside. And when we do, whether they call us or we call them, our purpose is to strengthen each other's faith and to call forth a renewed commitment to serve Jesus. That's the purpose for encouraging. And I'm going to tell you something that I think is true. And if it's not true, you should feel free to disagree with me. I don't think that this church does well with that kind of encouragement. I think we have a long way to go. But I believe we can learn to do it. So here in Acts 20, Paul is calling these Christians, verses 1 and 2, to come to him... And he is going to strengthen their faith. He's going to call them to a renewed commitment to Christ. And those two questions come back to us. Who's encouraged you? And when's the last time you've encouraged someone else? Paul shows us that encouraging others means you live toward people. You live in the direction of people. And if we can learn to live this way, the impact is going to be great. And you're going to see it by the end of this passage. So let me get you to point number two. Encouragers live life not only toward other people, but with other people. Encouragers live life with other people. Now, I want you to think something for a moment. Do you know anybody, and don't belt out their name. These are what are called rhetorical questions. You just think about them inwardly. Do you know anybody that lives life alone They don't really move toward people, and they don't really like to be with people. People are a drain to them. They're happier by themselves. Now, that's true for all, of, well, at least for most of us, that there are periods of time where it is kind of actually nice just to you know, kind of have some alone time to recharge, right? Nobody's asking you of anything. You don't need to do anything for anybody. Lots of parents, lots of mothers specifically, kind of like those times every once in a while. But is there a patternistic way that some people live? They don't live with people. They don't live life with people. Now, you got to go all the way back to Acts 17 in your, memor in your memory, if you can remember this, that Paul left Berea, the city of Berea, in a hurry because the opposition was really growing there. And then he went to Athens. Now, listen, he went to Athens by himself. Timothy, Luke, and Silas weren't with him. When he went to Athens, it was by himself. And then he left Athens 
because it was really basically a failed ministry opportunity. And then he goes to Corinth, and who does he go with? He goes to Corinth by himself. There's a period of time, weeks, maybe even months, that Paul was really on his own. And what we saw by the time that he arrived in Corinth, well, it was a low place of discouragement for Paul. He really didn't have much left in his tank. And nearly always, Paul was with a team. It's one of my favorite lessons from our passage. Acts 20 opens with Paul traveling to various Gentile churches. He's taking up an offering. Did you know they did that in the first service or in the first century? You just saw us pass the basket. And some of you, if you're not familiar with church, are going, well, what are they doing? Is Pastor Tim getting all that money? Is he like wanting people to give more so he could get a bigger house? That's not how it works here. In fact, I would tell you that I never ever, not once have I ever touched any of the money that anybody ever gives here. I don't even know what you give. I have no access to those records. I have a salary and it does not deviate um, by the will of the congregation. So I don't have anything, no access at all to this money. But did you know that they took an offering in the first century churches as well. In fact, Paul is going around to all of these churches and he's encouraging them strongly, give. You need to give because there are really poor Christians back in Jerusalem and they are suffering persecution. They're losing jobs because of their faith in Jesus. We need to take an offering, he says, for them. So he's taking this big offering from all of these different churches and his motive is to to take all of that money and take it to the elders at the church of Jerusalem so that they could give it out to the poor. And he wanted to arrive in Jerusalem by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first, that's an eight-day festival, by the way. It's one of what's called in the, uh, the Jewish language a high holy day. So it's, it's an eight-day festival. Starts with a Passover. Third day in is the Feast of First Fruits. And then it ends with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He wanted to be in Jerusalem to celebrate that, but he did not make it there. Uh, he didn't make it there, and you'll see why in a moment. But he gathered around him a group of representatives from all these churches. They're going to be not only his security team. He's traveling with a boatload of money. They're going to be his security team. But they're also going to show the Jerusalem church, all these Gentile church, non-Jewish churches love you too. You're not alone. And who was his security team? He's got Sopater, the Berean. He was a Bible student. All the Bereans were. He's got Aristarchus, whose name indicates that he is the elite of Thessalonica, the best of the best, part of the aristocracy. He's got on a security team a Thessalonian by the name of Secundus, whose name means second. How would you like to be named by your parents? A name that means second place. Well, that would be a little humbling, right? Well, that, that man's name was named and meant second. You know, I, let me tell you really quickly this. In a Greek slave household, the number one slave who was basically the boss of all the other slaves was called the Primus. His assistant they handled most of the administrative duty in the slave household. That person's title was Secundus. 
So you've got a man from Thessalonica, Secundus, who is a very seemingly humble man. And then you've got along with him somebody from the aristocracy. So you've got a really important guy along with somebody that's not very important. And they're all part of this team that Paul is gathering to take this offering to Jerusalem. And then you add in Gaius and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus along with Luke, as you'll see in a moment, and possibly Titus. You've got a team of nine to ten people, including Paul. And they're on their way to Jerusalem. And he had profoundly impacted, Paul had, each of their lives, and he was living life with them. He gathered them intentionally to teach them and to live with them. He's an encourager. In other words, for us to live in a way that's defined by parakaleo and encouraging life, we've got to live life toward others and live life with others. Now, let me tell you something before we go to our, first, our third and final point. Everything I just said basically could have been a TED Talk. Anybody could have gotten up and said this. Didn't matter if you're a Christian or not. In fact, non-believers talk about parakaleo. They talk about living an encouraging life. Companies bring in outside speakers to teach people to do this. What's going to bring it to the gospel? Point number three is going to help us do that. Encouragers live life for others. Now watch the progression. I said, number one, they live life toward others. And then number two, live life with others. And now I'm telling you the encouragers live life for others. And if we're going to live a life of encouragement, we need to know just how influential we really are. And Paul is going to show us exactly this. Now, I want you to look at verse 6. This is pretty interesting, by the way. Chapter 20, verse 6, Paul and Luke sailed from Philippi. Now, how do you know Luke is there again? Look at the pronoun changes that happen. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And now he starts using we and us, meaning he's come from Philippi. He was there for about seven years. And he's come to Troas with Paul. He's back with Paul. And they went there after the days of unleavened bread. The year was A.D. 57. The, that, that puts this festival from April 7th to April 14th. So now you're in the springtime. Remember, Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem, but they had winter season, December, January, February. Nobody sailed on the Mediterranean. It was way too rough, way too dangerous. You moored your boats until March and then spring. Paul wanted to get there. He couldn't get there. There was a, an attempt at killing him. It says it in the text. See, the Jewish people were going to get him onto a boat. And then at some point during the voyage, probably put a knife in him and throw him overboard. It happened all the time. You could kill somebody very, very easily in the middle of the ocean. Paul heard about this attempt and he says, nope, I'm going to reroute then my journey. But it makes him miss being in Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So now he's going to get there by the day of Pentecost. That happens 50 days after Passover. But now he knows he's never going to be back in this area again. He wants to encourage these churches one final time. 
So he goes to Troas with Luke. And look what it says. On the first day of the week, verse 7, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. He's preaching with them, but not just preaching. He's just interacting with them. He's conversing. He's teaching them. He's intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. All right, now I'm very, very aware that this does not give me a license to preach for four or five hours, although I'm sure many of you would love it, right? Amen? What a, that's a whole lot of lying right there. I'm very aware you can't, you know, you can't use this as a proof text to preach unlimited hours. I get that. But we've got the first day of the week. Who knows what that day is? It's a Sunday, right? The Jewish people celebrate the Sabbath on the Saturdays, but the early church, by this point, here's the proof of it, began to meet and celebrate and worship on the first day of the week. And that first day of the week is not Monday like it's ours. It's Sundays. It's the day that Jesus was resurrected. And all over the Roman Empire, people worked seven days a week. They didn't have weekends. A lot of the world today, nobody has a weekend. When I went on a mission trip to Haiti, it was eerie because on Sunday, it felt like any other day of the week. Nobody has a weekend really in Haiti. So they are now in Troas. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. And they are now having to work all day. And then they come together and celebrate and worship as a church. So it's in the evening and it's likely around seven o'clock. They're on the third floor, which is called the upper room. And I want you to see in verse 9, a young man named Eutychus. He's going to be called a youth later on. He's sitting at the window and he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on and on and on. The kid fell asleep. He's been teaching for hours. I want you to understand this. It's warm. They're in Troas in April. It's warm. They're in the third floor and heat rises. It's lit by torches. That's what lamps were. They were torches set in sconces at the, end, at the uh, walls of the room. So the light is flickering. I mean, for a lot of us, that would put us straight into a deep sleep. It's hot. There's a lot of people packed in there. You probably didn't have a lot of oxygen. You got flickering light. It's getting late. And this youth meaning he's between 8 and 14 years old. He falls not only asleep, he falls out a window to his death, three stories down. By the way, isn't it ironic that the name Eutychus means lucky? True? Remember, I told you that Luke is with Paul. This is why I believe that God made sure with the pronoun changes, us and we, that we, that we knew Luke was there. Because I'll tell you what liberal Christians do is the boy didn't die. He just went into an unconscious stupor and then he came out of it. If you've ever been knocked out, 
That's what they say happened. But Luke is a doctor. He is a medical doctor, and he is there to pronounce the boy dead. There is no life in him. But Paul says, do not be alarmed. Now watch, he doesn't say, for his life is still in him. He says his life is in him. God raised this dead boy back to life. And what happened next shows us the influence that encouragers have on the whole church. Now look at verse 11. The church, unbelievably, goes back up. They climb the stairs, back up to the third floor, up into the upper room. And when they get there, look what they do. They celebrate the Lord's Supper. Some of you call it communion. And when Paul, verse 11, had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, that means one of two things. And I think it means both. It means you eat a meal or it means you celebrate the Lord's Supper. I think they did both. And that was usually what they did on the first day of the week. He had just celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Look at verse 6. He celebrated it, and it began with the day of Passover, followed by seven days that the Jews called the Feast of Sanctification. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was. Now, let me stop in case I'm, I'm losing anybody. Sanctification means you take a big bath spiritually, and you become more clean than you were when you went into the bath. In other words, it means that there is a progressive maturing, there is a progressive movement in us called sanctification where it means that tomorrow we will be more like Jesus than we were yesterday. Why? Because the Spirit of God that we sang about earlier is in this place. The Spirit of God is in us. We are the temple for the Spirit of God. Christian, you've got the Spirit of God in in you and the Spirit of God is working in you to bear fruit of sanctification so that you love more, that you have more joy, that you're more patient with people that are difficult. You don't get angry so reactively. There's a lot more gentleness and kindness and self-control. All of that is the fruit of the Spirit of God's work in your life called sanctification. So Paul just celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which the Jews called the Feast of Sanctification. Now, you know what they did in that feast, right? The mother of the home would do this. She would take her broom. She had a little hand broom and sometimes a broom on a pole. And she would sweep out of her cup cupboards every trace of leaven. Leaven is what permeates your dough so that you can, your bread will rise. They would get every bit of leaven out of their cupboards and it would fall onto the floor and they would sweep it all out of the house, all onto the ground in front of their homes. They all did this every feast of unleavened bread. You must not have sin in your life. You must confess impurities. You must sweep it out of your hearts as well. You see, leaven represents sin, which rises us up in arrogance and pride and, ex and it gets in it spreads through all of our lives. It doesn't just stay in one little cupboard of your soul. The Lord's Supper, when we take this next week, 
I want you to come back. When we take the Lord's Supper together next week, it is a time for you and for me to examine our hearts, see what is impure in them, and by the grace of God, begin sweeping it out of our life through confession and repentance. That's the purpose, or at least a lot of the purpose, of the Lord's Supper. So here we've got this church in Troas. They watched an 8 to 14-year-old little boy fall to his death, raised back to life, and Paul leads them to observe an even greater miracle, the death of Jesus on the cross where the Heavenly Father raised him back to life. This is why this was so impactful, and it's what made a perfect transition for Paul to go to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of grace and it stirs us to greater commitment to Jesus. Now you remember, do you remember the purpose of encouragement, parakaleo in the church? It is to strengthen each other's faith and to call forth greater and renewed commitments to Christ. If you are going to encourage somebody if you are going to have parakaleo in your life, then what you're doing by intention, what you're doing through prayer is coming alongside one another so that you can help stir up their faith to greater proportion so that they will serve God with greater commitment. That's the purpose of encouraging one another in the church. Now look what Paul did right after the Lord's Supper. He conversed with them a long while. Remember, Eutychus died around midnight. He conversed with them a long while until daybreak, until 5.30 or so in the morning. And then he departed. Church stayed open all night. They were so encouraged. He taught them God's word. If you want to encourage somebody, friends, the best way and virtually the only way is to bring God's word, scripture to bear to them. Don't wax eloquent. Don't give your own pithy wisdom. That's not going to call forth increased faith. That's not going to renew greater commitment to Jesus. It's to bring God's word to bear to one another. A while ago, I had a young man come to me and said, Pastor Tim, I'm struggling with pornography. And I said, you know what, let's kind of dig into that a little bit because this has been an ongoing struggle for years and years in his life. I said, you know what, you've got a fairly long commute that, that you have to take to go to work, right? He goes, yeah, about an hour each way. I said, what do you listen to on the radio of your car? He goes, hip-hop, rap, music. I said, you know what, let's try something. Would you do this? I said, don't listen to any music. Get the Bible on a podcast, the Bible on an audio, and just listen to God's word there and back. And he called me yesterday, we talked yesterday, and he goes, you know what, I cannot believe this. It's like the power of pornography has broken. It's like it's not even there anymore. Do you not know that's the power of God's word? 
Friends, if you are struggling with sin, if you are struggling with discouragement, hopelessness, depression, the answer is not worldly wisdom. The answer is not try harder. The answer is the living word of God. And if you're going to be someone who lives out parakaleo, you need to call people to your side. And you need to be willing to go to their sides. And you need to be able to say, listen, I have hope for you. It's in God's word. Let me read it with you and let the living and active word of God get down to you your heart. You will find power to live and encourage life. Your faith will be greater and your living and your commitment to Jesus will grow exponentially. Now look at verse 12 and I'm almost done. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Now you know what that word comforted is in the Greek? You ready? Parakaleo. Parakaleo. The entire church got to hear the word of God, saw the power of God raise a dead kid to life, and they were all encouraged with greater faith and with a greater commitment to Jesus. Encouragers live toward, with, and for people, helping to strengthen and renew their commitment to trust in and serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus. This is how we've got to learn to live. This is exactly what Hebrews 10 says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's parakaleo. All right, now give me one minute and 35 seconds, okay? Watch the, the chain reaction on the screen that you will see in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now watch for it. It's a chain reaction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all parakaleo. That's the word all encouragement, all comfort. Who comforts us, parakaleo, in all our affliction, why? What's the chain reaction? So that we may be able to parakaleo those who are in any affliction. With what? With the parakaleo with which we ourselves have been parakaleo by God. Do you not see the chain reaction? Well, let me explain in case you don't as we wind down to a close. Whatever God has done to admonish, exhort, comfort, come alongside, encourage, help you, you go learn to do the same with others. And he will show you how to do it. Which, in my final statement, is why it is so amazing to be around an encourager. And here's why. Because they live like the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus called the parakletos, the helper, 
in John 16, 7. That's the name for the Holy Spirit, the parakletos. And when you're around an encourager, you're actually being around someone who is just like him. And that's the way we all ought to be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. As Mark comes up here, and we're going to sing one more song, Lord, and it's going to be a a song where we're going to want to stand up and we're going to want to sing with our hearts to our great and holy God. Lord, we want to sing this song because you have sent your helper who is the paraclete. And he has come in and he is our comforter. He is our encourager. He is the one that comes alongside of us and helps us live a life of sanctification. And he's calling us to live the same way. Every single Christian needs to live out encouragement. Paracleo. Well, if we're going to do that, Father, we need to learn to live toward other people. We need to learn to live with other people. And we need to learn to live for other people and bring the word of God to bear so that we can encourage them to greater faith and to a greater commitment to serve Jesus. Lord, we love you. Would you teach us this? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.